So recently I wrote a defense of the uncontroversial within cognitive science, but widely disbelieved idea that the mind is a computer. And that essay got me thinking about other ideas that are broadly accepted amongst the experts that study them, but not among the general population. Now, I agreed with some of these ideas before I read much about them. For these, the expert consensus just reinforced my prior worldview. But for most, I had to be persuaded. Many ideas are genuinely surprising, and one needs to be confronted with a lot of evidence before changing their mind about it. Number one, markets are mostly efficient. Most people, most of the time, cannot beat the market. The efficient market hypothesis argues that the price of widely traded securities like stocks reflects an aggregation of all available information about them. This means investors can't spot deals or overpriced assets and use that knowledge to outperform the average market return without taking on more risk. The mechanism underlying this is simple. Suppose you did have information that an asset was mispriced. You'd be incentivized to buy or short sell the asset expecting a better return than the current market would dictate. But this action would cause the asset's price to adjust in the opposite direction, moving it closer to the correct value. Taken as a whole, the very action of investors trying to beat the market is what makes it so difficult to beat. Asset bubbles and stock market crashes are not good evidence against this view. So for all the people who predicted a bubble or crash, how many made money from their prediction? Nor is that friend you know who seemingly made fantastic returns from crypto, real estate, penny stocks, or whatever. That's usually explained by them taking on a lot more risk and thus having a higher risk premium and also getting lucky. The obvious consequence is that for most retail investors, it's better to put their money in broad-based index funds and to get the benefits of diversification and earn the average market return with fewer fees. Number two. Intelligence is real, important, largely heritable, and not particularly changeable. All right, this one was one that I fought accepting for years. It goes against my beliefs in the value of self-cultivation, practice, and learning. However, the evidence is somewhat overwhelming. Intelligence is one of the most scientifically valid psychometric measurements, far more so than personality, including the dubious Myers-Briggs. It is positively correlated with many other things we want in life, including happiness, longevity, and income. It shows strong heritability, with the G factor, the central part, maybe being as much as 85% heritable. Finally, few interventions reliably improve IQ, with a possible exception for more education, although it's not clear that this improves G. Look, I don't like trotting this argument out. I find it much more appealing to believe in a world where IQ tests don't measure anything, or they don't measure anything important, or that differences are just due to education and environment, or that you could improve your intelligence through hard work. That said, I do think there's a silver lining here. While your general intelligence may not be that easy to change, there's ample evidence that gaining knowledge and skills improves your ability to do all sorts of tasks. Practically speaking, the best way to become smarter is to learn a lot of stuff and cultivate a lot of skills. Since knowledge and skills are more specific than general intelligence, this may be less than we desire, but it still matters a lot. Number three, learning styles aren't real. There's no such thing as being a kinesthetic, visual, or auditory learner. I've had multiple interviews for my book Ultra Learning where the host asked me to talk about learning styles, and I always have to ever so gently explain that they don't exist. The theory of learning styles is an eminently testable hypothesis. Give people a survey or test to see what their learning style is. Teach them the same subject in different ways, so diagrams, verbal descriptions, physical models that either correspond with or go against a person's supposed learning style. 
and then see whether they perform better when teaching matches their learning style or worse when it doesn't. Careful experiments don't find the performance enhancements that one would expect based on the theory. Ergo, learning styles is just not a good theory. I think part of the reason this idea survives is that, first of all, people love the psychological equivalent of horoscopes. This may be why Myers-Briggs is so popular, despite a lack of scientific support for it. And second, that some people are simply better at visualizing, listening, or more dexterous, and this is a truism that seems quite similar to the theory of learning styles. But just because you're better at basketball than math doesn't mean that you'll learn calculus better if the teacher tries to explain it in terms of three-pointers. Number four. The world around us is explained entirely by physics. Sean Carroll articulates a basic physicist worldview that quantum mechanics and the physics described by the standard model essentially explain everything around us. The remaining controversies of physics, from string theory to supersymmetry, are primarily theoretical issues only relevant at extremely high energies. For everyday life at room temperature, the physics we know already does remarkably well at making predictions. Now true, knowing the standard model doesn't help us predict most of the big things we care about. Even calculating the effects of interactions between a few particles can be intractable. But in principle, everything from democratic governance to the beauty of sunsets is contained in those equations. Number five, people are overweight because they eat too much. It's also really hard to stop. The calorie in, calorie out model is, thermodynamically speaking, correct. People who are overweight would lose weight if they ate less. Yet, this is really difficult to do. As I discussed with neuroscientist and obesity researcher Stefan Guyane, the brain has a specific neural circuitry designed to avoid starvation and by extension any rapid weight loss. When you lose a lot of body fat, your hunger levels increase to encourage you to bring it back up. Now this is hardly a radical view, but it's strongly opposed by a particularly noisy segment of online opinion that either tries to explain weight in terms of something other than calories, or conceding that seems to assert that the problem is simply a matter of applying a little effort. One reason I'm optimistic about the new class of weight loss drugs is simply that as a society, we're probably a bit heavier than is optimal, and most interventions based on willpower don't work in the long term. Children don't learn languages faster than adults, but they do reach higher levels of mastery. Common wisdom says that if you're going to learn a language, learn it early. Children regularly become fluent in their native language, indistinguishable from native speakers, but adults who learn a language rarely do. But even if children eventually surpass the attainment of adults in pronunciation and grammar, it's not true that children learn faster. Studies routinely find that given the same form of instruction or immersion, older learners tend to become proficient in a language more quickly than children do. Adults simply plateau at a non-native level of ability. Now, I take this as evidence that language learning proceeds both through a fast, explicit channel and a slow, implicit learning channel. Adults and older children may have a more fully developed fast channel, but perhaps deficiencies in the slow channel that prevent acquiring completely native-like speech. This implies that if you want your child to be completely bilingual, it helps to start early. But that probably requires non-trivial amounts of immersive time in the second language. If they're only going to a weekly class the way most adults learn, then there may be no special benefit to starting extremely young, maybe even an advantage to starting somewhat older. Number seven, we're better off than our grandparents. We're vastly better off than our ancestors. Economic pessimism is fashionable. Everyone I talk to likes to point out various ways that the current generation, well, at least in North America where I reside, has it worse than our parents did. Houses and college degrees cost more, and it's harder to support a family on a single earner's paycheck. 
but pretty much every economic indicator is positive. Even the indicators that pessimistic pundits like to complain about are largely from areas where wages have been stagnant or inequality has been rising rather than genuine decline. The world we live in today is wealthier than that of our parents and fantastically wealthier than it was a century ago. Economic progress is not everything, but it matters a great deal. Now, this isn't a call to stop striving and rest on our laurels. Many problems in society still require fixing. But a narrative that begins by denying the material progress that has genuinely been made distorts the task ahead of us. So those are seven expert opinions that I agree with. Which ones do you agree with? Which ones do you not? Share your thoughts in the comments. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to get five of my audiobooks for free, just go to scotthyoung.com slash podcast. 